As we mentioned uh, earlier, um, we're this year celebrating the season of Advent as we get ready for Christmas. And Advent and Christmas are kind of different things. Advent is a season of expectation and waiting and hope before the celebration of Christmas. Uh, The idea is sort of like a spiritual pregnancy. It is a time when you plan and you wait and you celebrate this child that's going to come before the child comes. And we talked last week about how there is some hope in that and that that hope sometimes is even better than the reality behind it. You know, we talked about how it's a lot more fun to be expecting a baby than to be dealing with a newborn baby. And that that is the way sometimes our lives go, that what we hope for is um, right in front of us and it's something we desire. Today we're going to talk about peace. And I think that there is kind of a universal understanding in our culture right now of desiring peace at Christmas. You may have noticed, to some of your chagrin, that um, the John Lennon, so this is Christmas, you know, war is over if you want it, is more ubiquitous on the radio than it felt like it was 10 years ago. And for some of us, that's a really great sentiment. Some of us hate the song. We're like, oh, geez, this again. But it's a song that talks very specifically about the ending of international conflict and Christmas and bringing it together, which is a particularly interesting idea coming out of a noted atheist thinker in John Lennon. Uh, Also, I've seen a whole lot more, do they know it's Christmas time at all? Like this was super cool in 1987 or whenever that song came out, right? And now, (laughs) it says it's still really cool, but it's become a big thing again, the song about uh, the African continent and all the terrible things that were happening in the African continent and how at Christmas time we should be thoughtful of people who live in conflict, that live in war. And so we're more and more and more thinking as a culture broadly about peace and war, about conflict and resolution when it comes to the Christmas season. And this makes some sense. Uh, We have this part of the Christmas story in Luke that uh, you probably see often on Christmas cards and stuff. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. If you're like me, when you hear someone calling for peace, when we have this end of year thing where we go, oh, geez, 2019 was a real pain in the neck. I wish that 2020 would be better. Eventually, there starts to become a little disillusionment with it. Like how many years do we have to go? Oh, this was a terrible year. We were terrible to each other. We beat each other up and we're going to do better next year. And then fast forward 12 months, we're like, oh, man, we messed that up again, didn't we? There's like this surge of goodwill because December is on the calendar. Like, we're going to be better people. And then when it actually takes the work to be better people, we go, no, never mind. That's too much. (laughs) And we just live in this constant strife, this constant agitation as a culture between people on this side and that side. And you can fill this and that with whatever you want to fill it with. But we live in a world that is constantly agitated. And it's helpful, as in Advent, we desire for peace to come. God, please bring peace. That we know that Mary and Joseph and the child Jesus sat in their world and said, God, could you please bring us some peace? Because Jesus is born into an incredible time of strife. I'm going to start out here in uh, Luke chapter two, or Matthew chapter 2. Uh, this is a long passage. We're going to read it all at once because I want you to feel the enormity of just how much is happening 
in the early life of Jesus Christ. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report him to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They, then they opened their treasures and presented with him with gold, gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod recognized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was uh, said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Herod is a particularly terrible character in the story and um, in the history of the Judean people. Herod was known for being a paranoid, crazy, murderous king. There was a classic line. Herod was very concerned with appearing to be a righteous Jewish man but also uh, worrying about people taking his throne. And so there was an old phrase that it was safer to be Herod's pig than it was to be his son, because he would never risk looking like a non-Jew by eating pork, but he would kill his boys if he thought they were going to usurp his throne. And this is the kind of man that Herod is. And Jesus' birth is directly thrown into the political world of his day. As soon as he is born, there is this tension between him and Herod. And you kind of understand it from Herod's perspective. These wise men, these magicians, these people of knowledge come in from a foreign land and they go, oh, hey, we heard there's a new king for this place that was just born. And if you're the king, you go, oh, new king? That's interesting. I'm the current king. I'm wondering who this person is that's going to take my spot. And Herod, like any ruler or any politician does, immediately starts to worry about someone taking a seat because that is the thing you worry about when you have power is how do I keep my power? And so Herod begins this whole wretched thing where he goes about trying to find a way to kill the infant Jesus because he does not want any threat to his control of Judea. 
And what's really interesting to me is Herod kind of gets it right. I mean, he's too stupid to really get it right, but he kind of gets it right. Because Jesus is never going to try to become king of Judea. Jesus is never going to hold political office. Jesus is going to never desire to be the actual king. But Jesus is going to usher in a new way of thinking that makes rulers like Herod obsolete. Jesus is going to come in and he is going to preach a way of life that says coming in, guns blazing, kicking down doors, slitting throats, killing whoever's in your way is no longer the way that you show people leadership. No longer is violence and control and corruption and evil and all these things that Herod is doing. Herod is a lying, cheating, no good so-and-so, right? And Jesus is going to say, that is not the way that you lead human beings. That is not the way God desires for people to be led. And so Jesus will undermine Herod completely, but not in a formal way. He's not going to raise up an army and destroy Herod's throne. He's just going to show Herod as the emperor with no clothes. The one who is ruling in a way that is totally corrupt and totally worthless. And so Herod is right to be afraid of Jesus, but he doesn't understand how he's right. He doesn't know how he got there, but he's right that Jesus will undermine everything that he stands for. In the midst of this, um, we see the wise men who are wise men, right? There's not three of them, just so that we can all get our Sunday school trivias right. There's three gifts. Maybe there's three wise men. It would be convenient for each to carry one gift, but I don't know. Maybe one of the guys had frankincense and Miranda's back. We don't know. But there's plural wise men. There are these guys that are traveling to see Jesus, and they somehow inherit, like uh, intuitively, understand what Jesus is about. So much so that they come to this house where there's this toddler. We always do this story as if they show up the same time as the shepherds. It's probably not how it works. They probably see the star when Jesus is born. They travel six months for a year. They get there and then they see Jesus as he's running around as a toddler. Look at, you know, Mary or Levi or somebody. And that is the age of baby Jesus when the Magi probably show up. And they look at that little toddler and they bow to the ground. They say, this is God amongst us. See, the reality here that is impossible for us to get past is that this is a very political passage in that it is a passage about what power and influence looks like. It's very easy to look at Herod and his guards and his swords and his uh, manipulations and think Herod is a powerful man. But the Magi see Herod and they go, eh, he's fine. And then they get to Jesus and they go, no, this, this is God. That somehow they see God as present in a child in a way he is not present in a king. And you are forced in this passage by Matthew to ask yourself a very important question as you desire peace. How are you going to get that peace and who's going to give it to you? Because many of us for centuries have been convinced if we get a strong enough guy with big enough biceps and large enough bombs and sharp enough swords that he'll kill the bad guys and then we'll have peace. And the Magi says that is not what real power looks like. It looks like a toddler running around the living room. And that's powerful. 
It's hugely powerful. It says that the gospel says that the good news is that ideas and love and kindness and goodness and decency, these are the kinds of things that God will use to change the world. Not the Herods, but the Jesuses. Jesuses, that's hard to say. That is where the power and the, the, the strength is. And then the story, it would be so easy to stop it here and go, oh, that's lovely. But there's a little bit more, and it's the part that we tend not to talk about as much because it doesn't fit as nicely into a nativity play. Because then immediately, Mary and Joseph leave. They flee to Egypt. There is no other more accurate way to say this, that they become political refugees. They are living in a country where their government no longer welcomes them, are actively trying to kill them, and they are forced to cross a border in the middle of the night to go save their lives. And that is what Jesus dealt with as a little kid, was living in Egypt, not speaking the language, not knowing the culture, just trying to get along as this little Jewish three or four-year-old in an Egyptian society. Because there was a man that was so interested in power that he would rather kill children than to take care of the people in his own country. That is the story of Jesus Christ. And so we're forced with this question. What kind of king are you going to serve? Both Luke and Matthew set up this story very clearly to say there are two approaches to kingship. There is the Herod way or the Caesar way, and there is the Jesus way. And which of those ways do you believe in? Which of those do you care about? Because one of them lies and cheats and murders to get his way. The other one is weak and helpless and fleeing. Which way is the one you're going to follow? There's not a nice, like, middle class, stay in a nice suburban home middle option in this story, right? It's one or the other. You get to be the lying, cheating murderer, or you get to be the one that runs away from the lying, cheating murderer. But that is the two kings that are put before you in these stories. Which one is going to give you orders? Which one are you going to listen to? Are you going to believe and follow a despot or are you going to believe and follow a refugee? Because those are the two kings that are offered to you by the book of Matthew. Um, My guess is, as we talk about all this stuff, um, you're a little exhausted about an election that's 11 months away from happening, right? Like some of us are ready to just take our computers or our TVs and chuck them out a window. And if you're not, you're either not paying attention or you're the person that everybody else wants to check out the window, okay? Those are kind of our options. Because we've gotten to this place where we're in constant political struggle. When I talk about peace, a lot of you immediately go, oh, that would just be turning off the news for five minutes. We're exhausted about it. And I know some of you... Um, It may sound trite to say this, but it is important as we look at that strife in our culture to remind ourselves that we already have a king that is in control. We follow Jesus. And, you know, I get it. This sounds really fake and hokey and boring, right? To go, well, I don't know who you're voting for, but Jesus is my king. It's like, oh, geez, come on, Caleb. Way to, you know, Jesus juke your way out of that conversation. 
But this is a real reality you have to ask yourself. Is he on the throne or not? Are you going to be comfortable with Jesus being in control of this world and stop freaking out about what's on the TV? Or are you going to sit there and wring your hands and grit your teeth and cry about elections, get all upset about all this other stuff because you think that whoever is elected is the one who's in control? You have to ask yourself that question if you're a follower of Jesus. Because we say Jesus is king, but then we poop our pants when something happens not the way we want it to happen. And we get all worried. And we just have to be honest. Jesus is in control then. It's just like a nice thing we say at church, but it's not a thing that really has penetrated our hearts. And we say, oh God, we desire for peace to come. He said, you have a lot more peace if you listen to what I'm telling you. There's this uh, passage in Isaiah. We, we sing it all the times at Christmas. And I, um, I wanted to look at it because there was a phrase that just bit me in the face last week. And it's really interesting because this is the only picture online I can find that has the phrase I want. Most of them emit this phrase. I'm like, oh, why does that happen? But listen to this. This is a, a prophecy of Isaiah that we usually ascribe to Jesus. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called a wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, The Prince of Peace. That phrase, the government is on his shoulders. Because we live in a a representative democracy and because we can vote, a lot of you feel like the government is on your shoulders. Right? And people are going to pump it up because they want you to get out to vote. And they're going to make you feel guilty if you don't vote. They're going to be like, well, you need to do this to be a good citizen, blah, 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 blah. And we can have a debate about civics some other time. But they want you to feel that the weight of our government is literally on your shoulders. And Isaiah says, no, the weight of the government is on Jesus Christ's shoulders. And all of that stuff that you worry about, that fills your mind with doubt and frustrations and anger and makes it so you can't talk to your own relatives and all that stuff rests on the shoulders of Jesus. They literally couldn't even stand up without the ground of Jesus beneath their feet. And that's a powerful, powerful statement. Now, um, some of you are annoyed that I go here, right? Some of you are like, oh, Caleb's like Uncle Herman at Thanksgiving. He brings politics. This is a Christmas service. Can't we just sing Silent Night and, you know, Joy to the World and then go home happy? How do you get into this stuff? And we get into the stuff because I think that we desperately want peace. I think every person I know, no matter what their political stripe, are sick and tired of living in the world they're living in. And they're angry, and they're frustrated, and they want to know what to do. And it doesn't mean there's nothing to do. I would just point out, did you notice the civil disobedience of the Magi? Right? Herod goes, listen, you need to come back to me after you find Jesus. And they get a dream, and they're like, yeah, no, we're skipping town. Sorry, Herod. Bye. Right? They just spit in the eye of the king. We are not doing what you tell us. And that's fascinating. Right? It tells us that we don't have to just walk lock in step with whatever's going on. And it doesn't mean God's cool with whatever's going on. He's certainly not cool with the infant's blood running through the streets of Bethlehem. But it is to say that if you truly do want peace, you have got to come to a point where you trust that God is in control of this stuff. And that Jesus is there. 
And you ought to ultimately decide where your allegiance is because we are so good at secularizing this to where we say Jesus is king on Sunday morning and then we've got the NPR freaking us out Monday morning on our way to work and we don't believe Jesus is king anymore. Not in a practical way, not in an important way. And we get so tied into a certain ideology or a certain candidate or a certain whatever that then when people don't act like Jesus, we go, oh, it doesn't matter they don't act like Jesus. It doesn't? I think it does. I think decency and kindness and character and looking out for the least of these are the very things that we have to be looking for in our society. We talked about the difference between quiet and peace. Quiet is when everybody shuts up, no matter how miserable they are. Peace is when we've taken care of everybody adequately so that everybody can have what they need. And we're not going to have peace until we look into justice and we take care of mercy and we look at all those things. But it all starts with who is in charge and whose character are we formed into. And that character is the Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, the Holy One, Emmanuel. That is the only one that's going to give us any kind of peace. Now, there's a reason the sermon was given this week and not next week. We'll have visitors here next week, you know, like we'll have all these people in. They'll be like, hey, yay, Christmas, and we'll be much more happy this week. But I do hope that you see in the story of Jesus this reality. That Jesus lived as an oppressed person early in his life at the hands of his government. And he still found a way to bring peace where he went. He still found a way to grow up to be the prince of peace, the one that brought peace to his people. May we focus so much on him and his way of life that we really stop giving so much of ourselves to all of the conflict that's around us. Uh, We're going to have a song now. And um, during that song, if you will fill out um, those Q&A cards you have. If you have any questions about today's sermon or a song or anything else, I'll also fill out the prayer request. And when we're done, um, I'll do the Q&A and then we'll have another song. Well, that one's happening. Let me go ahead and start on this one. So, and this is always the question that comes after this sermon, right? So, because I've given the sermon a couple ways a couple times before. Um, so, we talk about kind of trusting Jesus to be in charge and be in control. But then what about our free will? What about the power that we do have? Uh, and obviously for us, we do have voices. We have ways to act. We have ways to vote and all those kinds of things. Um, I think it's always important when we talk about peace and government and all these things that we have to acknowledge that we have options that Jesus just didn't have. have okay? Um, nobody would have ever allowed Paul or Jesus to put a... Uh, you know, like a, a district initiative into a ballot box or check yes or no on proposition whatever or to vote for a candidate. Uh, Caesar was actually not running for office. Uh, he usually just kept that office until he was done with it. And so it does bring a difference to our world. Um, I think it's really helpful to think about our political capabilities a lot like money. All right, so God gave you money to use in a good way, and money is a blessing from God, right? If we didn't have any, it'd be a big problem. And so money can be good, but then what does the Bible then spend most of Scripture talking about after giving you that good money? Warning you about the dangers of loving that money, the dangers of hoarding it, the dangers of being obsessed with it, the dangers of greed. 
I think that your political advocacy, whether it's voting or it's you know campaigning or knocking on doors or whatever, I think that stuff is much like money. It can be a valuable tool used the right way, but you've got to watch your heart real careful to make sure that it doesn't take over the spot that God should have. And in the same way that we can become obsessed with money real fast, we can become obsessed with political action real fast. And we had to ask ourselves these gut questions. Do I feel safe in my home because I bought a nice house with nice locks in a nice neighborhood? Or do I feel safe in my home because I think God's going to be with us? In the same way, you know, do I think that the world's going to be okay because God's in control? Or do I think it's okay because I did six hours of volunteering for a campaign last week, right? Like, there's just, there's that heart thing that we have to get, uh, compete with. All right, uh, connecting the ideas that God is in control, but we are the hands and the feet and the voices of Jesus. Um, yeah, I think the biggest way that I do that is that, um, kind of use this phrase sometimes in our culture now, think globally, act locally. I think that's a really godly thing. Um, be really good at loving the people that you directly touch. Like there's a lot of people that get really worried about an issue and then they never help any people with it, right? So like um, some, some people are like, we really got to change the way we do taxes so that we can help the poor. Well, okay, but you have poor people that live on your street. You have poor people that work with you. You have poor people that go to your kids' schools. And to spend like 10 hours a week trying to change legislation, but zero hours a week, like helping them like put up their Christmas lights, right? Like, you know, like there's just, there's like an imbalance there. And so my encouragement would always be to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Yeah, act locally where you can. Because your life given fully to the people in your sphere of influence will make a bigger difference than your life given fully to some big global cause. And there's other Christian people that disagree with me on that. Okay, that's not the gospel truth. But it's the way I understand it. Because if we all were really good about helping the people that we know and we see every day, and when we did that on a massive scale, we wouldn't have the political problems we have. Right? Uh, and so that's the way I, I put those things together. All right, we have one more song. It is Silent Night. I was not mocking that song earlier. It's a fine song. Uh, let's go ahead and stand and sing it as we close out.